Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is your boy, Jay Mace. Welcome to another special episode of Beyond the Album Cover, where we take a look at music and everything else in between. Right now on the phone with me, I have music and cultural critic Amy Linden. Her pieces have been publicated in various outlets, such as the New York Times, People, Vibe, Double XL, contributed to many essays, and she's also the co-host, along with Courtney Anderson of the podcast, I'm Gonna Let You Finish. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's um, very flattered to be invited. Man, I've been a huge fan of your work ever since I saw you contribute to BBD's Life After Special on TV One. So it's definitely oh, a big treat for me to have you on. Oh, thanks. I, yeah, I was always the token hire for that. They said, let's get a white girl in here to talk about this shit. You know, <laughs> that was fun. I used to love doing those shows. Those were fun. Thank you for the compliment. Uh, definitely no problem. Uh, we're going to get into various rabbit holes as far as music goes because uh, during this COVID-19 I've been boning up on looking at UK episodes of Top of the Pop and experiencing love of UK urban and pop acts who I felt should have made it big in America. I mean, I've always been a big, uh, like you, like Courtney, a big fan of what they call UK soul. I mean, from the beginning, from the 60s on up, I've always been really intrigued by how they take what is in essence an American music, an American art form, and how they put their spin on it, you know. Right, because if you look at the Northern Soul movement, that was pretty much Motown with a British flair to it. Then we can go as yeah. far back as Dusty Springfield, at such as Dusty, George Michael, Adele, Sam Smith, Boy George. Pretty much every pop act that came out of the UK during that 80s boom all said how much the U.S influence their style of music. Right. Well, I have to be argumentative here. I wouldn't put Sam Smith in the category of being a soul singer at all. Not even, I don't, <laughs> I think he's soulless, to be honest with you, but that's mm. just me. But yes, I mean, it was a huge influence. I mean, from, listen, from the blues on back, I mean, the Rolling Stones, all those groups, they would wait to buy the American blues records. I mean, this is what we did. We produced this music, you know, so um, they were very much imitative of us. And what the cool thing is, is that after a while, they didn't have to imitate us anymore and they put their own kind of spin on it which is what makes it interesting you know to me yeah so for the people out there how did you get your start as a music and cultural critic oh my goodness i was always a music fan i was one of those kids that read music magazines as a teenager and i started writing about music just kind of as a punk rocker in san francisco during the punk scene there and i moved back to new york and was involved in the punk scene in new york and met somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody who wrote for Spin and they said they got some of my writing to them and it was just off to the races from there. Very lucky at a time when there was music journalism for real, when there were magazines this was way before the internet obviously so there was a much more, not easier but there were more people doing this so you had outlets to write for you know and I was mm -hmm. blessed very lucky to have always have great editors always work with really interesting people so I just kind of kept doing it you know and so with the punk scene emerging especially downtown with CBGB's and various other punk establishments was it to where at that time it was more covered by the indie mags and ignored by the mainstream mags such as Rolling well, Stone then? well I have to be really honest with you I was in San Francisco in the late 70s and so that I got involved in punk 
Montana, and I wrote for a local fanzine. So we were paying attention. But, you know, the major magazines started covering it. I mean, especially when the Sex Pistols broke, because you couldn't really ignore that, or when the Clash broke. But they were still, you know, the Village Voice in New York covered the East Village Eye, uh, Soho Weekly News, all places that no longer exist. So I was at CBs and stuff, but I was not at CBs at the height of CBs in the late 70s. I was still in San Francisco doing my thing out there. So was there a difference in the punk scene on the West Coast in, in New York, or was it all one yeah. thing? No, it was a little different. You know, there was diversity in both. I mean, you had your arty bands, you had your druggy bands. The West Coast is where you get hardcore from, and there was no hardcore scene in New York until the West Coast bands came out here. But the New York scene was more integrated into the art and the painting, and there was more of, of a, an influence of, I would say, quote-unquote black music because everybody was all up against each other and stuff, the more downtown scene. You know, it was similar. I would say that in New York was getting influenced. It was like going England, New York, and then on to the West Coast. But there were similarities, but the West Coast bands, they were the hardcore scene, and that was very different than what was going on in New York at the time. And also a music scene that was bubbling in New York around this time was a little emerging thing called hip-hop, which was a derivative of what was going on with disco. You had DJs such as DJ Hollywood, Eddie Chiba, Pete DJ Jones, DJ Flowers that were taking disco beat and putting rest to it. And that kind of started what came along with Sugar Hill Game, which was co-founded by Sylvia Robinson and uh, Mickey Stevenson, I believe was the last name, co-founded uh, Sugar Hill Records. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure if it's Mickey Stevens, you might be right. Is that, is that Mickey and uh, Sylvia? Sylvia and Mickey. Um, yeah, well, it's funny. I had heard hip-hop in San Francisco, but the first time I ever, like, went to a club and danced to hip-hop was at a punk club in New York. I mean, you heard it everywhere. I mean, it was all, no pun intended, integrated. I mean, you would be at clubs, and they would play Joy Division, and then they would switch to R.E.M., and then they would switch to Sugar Hill Gang. I mean, it was just all part of the mishmash that was downtown New York City. I mean, it's really mythologized in a way. I mean, there were a lot of great things about it. There were a lot of really not-so-great things about it. We were all very young, obviously, so it was great, and it was cheap to live in New York. But you did hear everything everywhere. There was no division. I think if you talk to black folk who were living in New York City in the late 70s, early 80s, they were just as likely to tell you that they went to go see Blondie or Talking Heads as a white person is to tell you that they went to go see Sugar Hill Gang. Right, because I've heard stories about Fat Fat Freddy and a lot of those people who had the merging of Uptown and Downtown going back and forth right. into both worlds and kind of meshing the two. Yeah, yeah. He was the major guy, but you saw people everywhere. I mean, it was a very integrated sort of scene. New York City is huge obviously, but it's also a small town in a lot of ways, and it was a very creative time to be in New York. And again, it was cheap, certainly cheaper than it is now. And uh, when you're young, everything is interesting, right? <laughs> when you're 20, everything is super interesting. But if anything good comes out of this horror show that's happening right now with the pandemic, is maybe things will get so inexpensive again that we can have more creativity. Who knows, you know? Right. And what was your thoughts when MTV debuted in 81 and how it revolutionized the music industry? Can I tell you something? I never even saw MTV until like the mid-80s because I didn't have cable. <laughs> I didn't have cable until I was like in the mid-80s. 
Was MTV 81? Really? Yeah, MT- wow. yeah, MTV was 81. Um, I had a chance to interview Nina Blackwood, and she told me that when they first launched, they had to go over to New Jersey to watch the launch because since cable wasn't widely available there yet, no New York New York didn't even have it. So cable wasn't around at that time in the metro area? Yeah, we didn't have cable in Brooklyn until like 88, 89, something crazy like that. I mean, it was cool. You know what's funny? You would see videos in clubs. You'd go to clubs clubs like Peppermint Lounge and stuff like that and they'd be playing videos but it was videos done by like downtown artists and stuff to accompany the music so in San Francisco there was a company Target video and they filmed all the performances all the punk bands so we had seen videos before but I had no concept of what MTV was I mean I heard of it obviously but I never saw it it was like a big deal of you at cable back then I mean it really was I don't even think I owned a TV in 1981 to be honest I didn't I don't think I had a TV in 1981. But seeing it for the first time was like, wow, what a cool idea, right? It was weird. If you grew up with music being only audio, it was weird to see visuals to it. The cool thing to see the early years of MTV was that a lot of the videos that were being supplied were from acts overseas, which brings back to Top of the Pops because I know a lot of U.S. acts, when they couldn't perform over there, they would send videos in lieu of them not being able to perform. So a lot of Adam Man, Duran Duran, a lot of the UK pretty much got heavy exposure in the early of the MTV, which led to the new British invasion over here in the state. Right, yeah, like the new romantics and stuff like that. Certainly, Adam Ant and Duran Duran were as known for their as known for their visuals as they were for their music. I would say, right? Mm-hmm. Duran Duran was was a video band. Duran Duran for me wouldn't even exist without the visuals. I don't know. You could tell me, if, you know, if you think that's wrong, but I think if they didn't have those visuals, nobody would have really remembered them. No, actually not. They came at the perfect time, and I felt that way about Madonna. Perfect timing. She had the look. She had great music. It was getting played on pop, dance, and back then it was called black radio, but we would now call it urban radio, so she appealed to multiple formats. And I just think that for the music industry, for artists who weren't, big on being in front of the camera. They even had to adapt or step aside. When Madonna first came out, they didn't put her picture on the 12 inch. Everybody figured she was Puerto Rican because she was doing that kind of Latin-y, kind of Latin freestyle. People knew who she was in the downtown scene, but you had to wonder, you had people who may not have been as good looking. Did we lose out on a lot of good artists because they weren't photogenic, you know? Yeah, then of course the story that MTV called a lot of flack early on was that they had limited amount of catalogs by urban artists and there was a clip of David Bowie questioning Mark Goodman about the lack of urban artists that was getting airplay on MTV because I believe Rick James had made a statement about it and that kind of caused MTV to go into defense mode then that led to Michael getting put on then Prince and then the story about Michael was that Walter Yetnikov called MTV and told them that he would pull the entire library off unless Michael got played. Yeah. That sounds like something Walter Yetnikoff would do. He was kind of a thug. Yeah, but keep in mind, Michael was not as hard to sell, I have to imagine, because everybody knew who he was at that point. But they still were playing black music that had a rock sensibility, in a sense. They were not playing R&B. You know what I mean? They started playing hip-hop with rock box because there's a guitar in it. 
right? So it wasn't like MTV suddenly saw the light, no pun intended, and were like, oh, we have to embrace black music because it's so creative and interesting. It's like they had no choice. It wasn't until Yo! MTV Raps, I would say, that they really fully embraced what was going on with black music. You know, because I would say, obviously, Michael Jackson is black and he comes from a black musical tradition, but by that point, I mean, he was so huge that they would have looked crazy not to play him, right? I mean, it just would be, you know. Yeah, he was the biggest pop star in the world, and I'll explain to my wife, we'll never see a superstar like that again, where he had an album that was universally loved, and no matter where you go in the world, he's recognized. He had that same cultural cachet internationally, like Michael Jordan, where anybody in the world would know who Michael Jackson was. And I personally feel that Off the Wall was his better album for me oh, over yeah. Thriller. Yeah, yeah. That's sort of like the dirty secret. Like Thriller is the one that sold the most, but Off the Wall is the better record. I could go a lifetime without ever hearing the single Thriller. It's not a good song. Yeah, because I read like his motivation behind Thriller was that he was upset how Off the Wall was only nominated for Soul Awards. Once again, this was what it was called at the time now. It's called Urban, and he designed Thriller to make sure that it got airplay not only on Urban Radio, but Pop, AC. It was going to be a crossover album. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it had one for everybody. You know, it was like ordering off a menu. It had one for everybody. But, yeah, I, I mean, you are not alone in thinking that Off the Wall is widely considered the better album musically, but Thriller is the one that completely changed the landscape, you know? Right, and then I also went back, it was maybe last year, went back and listened to Prince's catalog from For You up to about Sign of the Times, and I come to have a deeper respect and appreciation for Prince and how he was always willing to push the boundaries and envelope and not just be comfortable with just playing the hits. He was always looking to challenge himself, while for the casual fan, that's a downer because you want to hear the hit. But for him as a musician, it's like, I'm going to give you what I want if you just want to hear then go listen to my album. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not the only one who says this, but I mean, it's like when you listen to Jimi Hendrix, right? Like, to me, Hendrix was as great a singer as he was a guitar player, though he was obviously much more innovative as a guitar player. And the thing with Prince is that even if he never sang a note, his musicianship alone would have carried him. Yeah, he was huge, but it was sort of like he didn't really start breaking through into the quote-unquote mainstream, which we can just say white people to, just to make it easier, because that's the ridiculous euphemism we use until Dirty Mind. Dirty Mind, I mean, you have your own opinion, but I think Dirty Mind is the record where people went, oh. I mean, he had a hit, certainly had hits on the first album, but that was very much marketed urban, their first record, you know. And then it started rolling. Once Wendy and Lisa came into the mix, I think that's when it really started becoming not just pop, but just more a wider scope, you know. Yeah, because I kind of felt he kind of figured out how to maintain that sweet spot of artistic integrity, but have that pop sensibility once 1999 came out with Little Red Corvette, 1999, and my favorite cut on that album, Lady Cab Driver. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny, because you can have a pop sensibility and still have artistic, you know, there's nothing wrong with selling records, you know. The Beatles were pop. The Stones were pop. Aretha, you know, everybody, there's a pop sensibility. There's nothing wrong with that to me. You know, I think it's a generation, and he's my age, or would be my age, a generation of people who were raised on Top 40 radio. So we really did grow up hearing everything, especially if you grew up in the New York area. I'm sure every city had this. It was the Top 40 radio, and they just played everything that was popular. So you heard 
Motown, next to Stax, next to Rock, next to, you know, everything. So you grew up kind of thinking, MTV had that same effect, too. I remember interviewing Dallas Austin years ago, and he said, you know, he was influenced by what he saw on MTV, and it gave him sort of the nudge to kind of be more thinking outside of the typical boss when he made his music. I mean, he was listening to groups that you'd think, why would this black kid from Atlanta be into this group? Well, it was on MTV. And he went, oh, I could do that, you know? Right, because like him, I grew up listening to everything that I was watching, MTV, BT, The Box, all simultaneously. Oh, the, box. the Box was great. The Box was great. Also, what was great was at this time, since MTV was a widely available because cable was limited, you had regional video shows that played right. different parts of the country, and NBC had Friday night videos. And I think even HBO and some of the premium movie channels would show music videos as filler until the next program. Oh, HBO, honey. I didn't have HBO until the early 2000s. I didn't have HBO. That was like really fancy to have HBO. Actually, I didn't have HBO because I had a young child at the time and I didn't want to have to like monitor what was on the television because HBO was where all the racy stuff was, right? Yeah, so this is before the beat <laughs> Right. I was like, I didn't have to pay attention to what he was watching, so I didn't have HBO. That's fine. Right. Well, first, R.I.P. to Ted Demi, who created your TV rap, but the show that preceded that, but it's still going on today, but it's a tri-state area institution, Ralph McDaniel and Video oh, Music yeah. Box. Oh, of course, yes. Thank you. I'm glad you brought that up, for sure. Yeah. Where else are you going to see these videos? There was no internet. You had to watch them. He was regular TV. He was like UHF, right? The kind mm. you had to put the antenna up, the weird antennas. Oh, my God. We sound old, don't we? Yeah, and I'm sure you remember pause tapes where you would set your radio on WBLS or KISS to record Red Alert. Chuck, chill out, Mr. Magic. Before that, I have tapes to this day of me just like lying in my apartment in the Lower East Side and flipping, literally flipping back and forth and back and forth between Frankie Crocker, between BLS and KTU, and you'll hear like nine million versions of like Jerkama Star, but only half of it because I get bored and flip <laughs> it back and forth. You know, technology changes culture, culture changes technology, so it keeps going. Right, and what I really found interesting was at that time, before, I would say, 87, when Urban Station started to really take rap seriously, that a lot of the new wave acts were getting airplay on urban radio, like Minute Work, Madonna, The Police, pretty much everybody that was getting airplay on MTV at that time. I mean, it's like, look, if it's good, it's good. I found, like, not across the board, obviously, but, you know, black audiences are often a lot more open to music than white audiences tend to be. I mean, just because if it's good, it's good. If there's a vibe, there's a vibe. Like I said, Madonna was getting play early on, and Madonna was very consciously tapping into the music that she heard in the club in New York City. But men at work and, well, the police were always huge across the board, right, because they had the reggae thing going on, you know, early on. I was never a police fan. I know it's like, we'll get me drummed out of some sort of circle. I mean, I liked them enough, but they were, I don't know, I thought they were kind of corny. <laughs> I liked them, but at the time, you have to understand, I'm older than you, and at the time, I was coming strictly out of punk rock, though I do remember the first time I heard Roxanne. I loved Roxanne. Loved that song, to this mm -hmm. day, you know? And also, I had a chance to interview Donnie Simpson, and he was telling me that... Oh, my um, God, that, really? What? Okay. Oh, where is he now? Donnie oh. Simpson, he's back on the radio in D.C. at uh, Magic. He was at WPGC when I interviewed him, but he told me that he was at KYS when he 
played Benny and the Jet for Elton John, and his PD got a big stink about it because, like, why are you playing this record for Elton John knowing that it wasn't meant for the urban audience? And this was back when DJ still had leeway. It was like, if it's good, it's good. And that brings me to my next point, that BT. I got to jump in for one second on that, though. Elton John appeared on Soul Train. So, you know, come on. I mean, Elton John played Philadelphia Freedom and Benny on the Jets on Soul Train. David Bowie appeared on Soul Train. Juno Vanelli, yep. average white band. High as a kite, David Bowie. He was so high during that clip. It's actually stunning to see. I mean, yeah, because I remember when VH1 did that Soul Train uh, special. They put an archival interview in from him, and he said he had trouble lip syncing. Yeah, I mean, no, it was great. It was great. Listen, I didn't know anybody who didn't love Bowie. I'm sorry, I took you off track, but I'm saying Elton John. So he had a huge following. I didn't know anybody who didn't like Elton John. I mean, full stop. Elton John is definitely universal, and this brings to my point where BT and VH1. They were the outlets that really provided a lot for the urban audience where if it was straight up R&B, you were getting played on those two channels. And speaking about Frankie Crocker, he was one of the original DJs when VH1 launched. So I was at VH1 in 1995, 1996-ish. I was hired to be a writer, and then they had a critic show. And I was at VH1 when they were AAA. You know, so it was like Cheryl Crow, Hootie and the Blowfish, all that stuff. And so, I will argue with you about VH1 and its urban friendliness, because back then, they were not so big on, they didn't want any mention of hip-hop or anything like that. Boys to Men was as black as they wanted to get. I was actually told that they did a focus group on me and that I tested too urban. <laughs> Oh, I don't know. It's Frankie Crocker, right at all. But when I was at VH1, when they really kind of started kicking into their own and establishing their own brand, and they did a great job with that, you know, it was the Dave Matthews, Cheryl Crow, Hootie era. Mm. And they were definitely not very urban-friendly then. But nope. They were back doing their music first era, right? That was their slogan yeah. at the time, music first. Yeah, music first. Hip-hop laughs. Yeah, they were not right. urban-friendly. And the one thing that I found kind of ironic was hip-hop exploding at the time was BLS and KISS out in New York. That if you go across the other side of the country, L.A., you had a little teeny tiny AM station, 1580 K-Day, which programmed rap right. all of the time. And I had a chance to interview Greg Mack from K-Day. And it was just interesting to see how they were taking what Magic and Red Alert was doing and was just right. amplifying it because it was all rap all the time. Right. But, you know, it is interesting, though, because, you know, people like Don Cornelius, Don Cornelius, who was a genius, you know, but he was very resistant to hip-hop. They finally kind of like, you have to have rappers on the show, and you could tell he was not feeling it at all. It was not his generation. He didn't know the executives. It wasn't his world. They didn't hang out. He would just sort of look at these guys like you're standing up here and talking you know like so it was interesting I mean Black Radio was playing it and there was a bit of resistance to it too because the guys running I'm not talking about the Mr. Magics and stuff and keep in mind those shows were on at like 2 in the morning but you know this wasn't their world it would be sort of like asking a record company executive or a TV producer to get into like grunge or something it's not your world you don't know these people you don't go to the club together so there was resistance in the beginning for sure you know mm -hmm. yeah definitely was because I know some dancers that used to dance on the show and they told me stories about Don how whenever he would be around doing tapings everybody would be puckered up tight because he ran that show with an iron fist oh I'm sure he did and all power to him because man that show at its height was the best show 
the hippest trip in town. Yeah, for me, that was appointment television, watching Soul Train and Video Soul, because actually Donnie Simpson and Don Cornelius, they were my two influences for wanting to get into media. And I would be remiss if I did not mention the late, great Andre Harrell and how I felt he was the executive that had the vision to mesh smooth adult 80s R&B with the emerging style of hip-hop, which led to the creation of New Jack Swing, which later morphed into hip-hop soul. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, Andre, you know, there are very few moments where you can look at the culture and go, this is where something new is being created. And, I mean, he was there. I mean, whether it was his artistic vision or whether he was smart enough to listen to people or whatever, but he certainly knew how to cultivate talent. Yeah, there is a moment where suddenly the needle shifts, and that was, you know, New Jack, and that was definitely a moment where the needle shifted to the point where you had people referring to hip-hop singers, which is an oxymoron because there's no such thing as singing hip-hop, but that whole idea was basically created because of what Andre did with Mary. Right, because listening to R&B pre-87, I say 87 because that was when Key Sweat, Make It Last Forever came out, so prior to that, it was Anita Baker, Sade, Freddie Jackson, Luther. It was very smooth, adult, upward mobile urban music. Sade to be R&B because I don't. I consider Sade to be a mixture of like R&B and jazz. Yeah, I mean, she's a little of everything. I mean, she gets back to that more European look at it, but I mean, I would say that Sade is, there are very few artists who can do whatever the hell they want to do, put out a record whenever the hell they want to put out a record and do whatever, you know, and people will be there. And I would say that she is certainly falls into that category because she could literally do whatever the hell she wants to do, you know. Yeah, she definitely earned that. But once Make It Last Forever came out, you kind of heard how R&B has changed. And Teddy Riley mentioned in an interview he did with the Red Bull Music Academy, that Frankie Crocker played it on Slam of the Janet, and the audience didn't respond well to it, but Frankie Crocker stood up for it and was like, hey, this record is going to be a smash, because if you think about it, it was hard, it had edge, it had bite. It was something that was for the young people of the day. Yeah, for sure. You always have to do that. You don't want your parents listening to your music, you know? I work with high school kids, and, like, the stuff they listen to, like, gives me a headache, and that's exactly as it should be. It should give me a headache, and vice versa. The stuff I listen to, they're like, this stuff is corny. I go, perfect. There we go. That's it. Right. But the one production team that I feel kind of set it up for Teddy and everything else to come after that was Full Force, because it kind of had elements of that with their work with Lisa Lisa, UTFO, so on and so forth, they kind of had a little bit of the Latin elements in there which paid the way for what was to come from freestyle. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You know that Latin freestyle? Yeah, Latin freestyle like TKA, Sweet Sensation, Cover Girls. I love it. It's not even a guilty pleasure. I'm not guilty about it at all. I just love it. I just love everything about it. Right. And now going back over to the UK, Top of the Pops, for those of you that don't know, was like the British version of what American Bandstand was here in America. It ran... For 40 years, it's still on the air to this day, only in the form of a Christmas special, but they would count down the top songs of the week. And it surprised me how there weren't really big representation of UK urban acts 
on that show and that led to me watching a documentary on pirate radio and how it wasn't until 1990 when the UK got their first commercial urban station which I found surprising okay so is that because reggae is so huge in England I mean reggae everybody I know who grew up in England and in London heard reggae their entire life so is that because maybe reggae was so uh, again not to use a cliche term integrated into pop music there that they didn't feel the need to have like a black music station? I think it was primarily where, because of course stations like BBC One and Capital, they catered more to Top 40 and then the urban right. audience, they were very much ignored by those in power and they didn't see like how in the U.S. Hmm, we need to capitalize on the love of urban, but the urban music over in the U.K. has more of a reggae influence because a lot of the kids have Caribbean descent because their parents migrated to England from the Caribbean so they had to bring right. that influence there and then they also of course took their cues from here but just added their twist to it. Right. I think of like British soul artists of the 60s and 70s, most of them that I think of off the top of my head are white artists who were hugely influenced by black American musicians. It's not until like the late 80s and the 90s where you start getting black British artists doing black British soul music. You know what I'm saying? It's like in the beginning, I mean, there were some artists, obviously, but like Northern Soul, that music is so obscure. But it's huge in England, but most uh, American fans wouldn't even know who half of these people are. I mean, England was the type of place where you could be the third backup singer for somebody, you know, for a soul band and be a huge star. Whereas in the United States, we're like, who are you? You know, like people are huge over there that we've never even heard of. And they're American. That's what's so crazy. Yeah. And they will pay a pretty penny for those U.S. imports. Oh, yeah. It's just the way that like Americans think. Maybe not so much anymore because we're such a global world now, as the pandemic is certainly showing. You know, we always think something that isn't ours is classier and more interesting. So, I mean, when I would go to London, I would see a book, and it was the exact same book that was released in the United States, but I liked the fact that it had a different cover. You know, it was a British cover. And I think that's the same way with music, that we look to other places for validation and other places look to us for validation. And we think it, right. we like our own spins on stuff. Right, because like you said, in the mid-80s, you had acts such as Five Star, Loose Ends, Sade, and then later on, Soul to Soul, that were from the UK that exploded over here. And then to the pop side, New Kids on the Block, was the inspiration for Take That. And when I interviewed Danny Wood and asked him about Take That, he kind of was saying the same thing you were saying, how it's tough to crack in America when you're doing the same thing as Americans and you're not from here because Americans going to have that mentality of, we got our own groups, but we do it 10 times better. Yeah, but also Take That would have been hard to crack here because their imaging was so different. There was nothing urban about it. They weren't dancing in the same way. They were grown men. I mean, new kids on the block were kids, you know. Take that. There was sort of a homoeroticism to the British bands that the American bands did not have. Some of those bands were just so British that I don't think a British boy band broke here until One Direction, really, right? Well, five, they had moderate success here in America, but yeah, didn't explode. Like One Direction. Speaking of Five, I had read in various pressings that Bye 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 was originally intended for them, but they passed on it, and that's how I think that. 
Well, there you go. So yeah, you passed, <laughs> yeah, you passed up on a good record. And with new kids on the block, we can't talk about them without mentioning the group that I feel started the modern-day boy band phenomenon, and that is New Edition. We can talk about New Edition all damn day, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, you know. we, we got the time. New Edition is my favorite group of all time. Well, I wouldn't go quite that far because... For me. Yes, no, for you. I think they're great. Again, this is a generational thing. They didn't hit me at a point where I was forming my opinions about music or forming me, but I will say that the Jackson 5 did that for me, you know, when I was a kid. So, no, New Edition was great, and they were totally, I think they're totally underrated because I still think people think that quote-unquote boy bands are not as serious, you know? They were great. Those are great songs. They hold up, you know? Totally hold right, up. Right, and then I look at the fact how all six of them was able to branch off and they have successful solo careers. I mean, Bobby launched out with Don't Be Cruel, the sophomore album that took him to superstar status. Ralph had success with his solo album. Johnny had success with his newfound solo career. And then... The biggest surprise out of all of them was BBD. Yeah, I mean, you know, they were smart. Well, Johnny Hill was already a solo star. They brought him in because they knew he was going to bring, hey, he's a great singer. But when Bobby started acting up, they said, let us bring this guy in, you know. I got to tell you, um, I interviewed New Edition, like, the first time they got back together, which was, like, I don't know, like, 93, 94, something like that. I was, like, they were, like, way more on the ball than I would have figured they would have been. I would have figured they'd be kind of, like, burnt out and, like, kid stars. They were, they're sharp cookies, for sure. And they were very nice. I don't know what that's got to do with anything, but I just thought I'd throw that in there that they were nice, yeah. including, Bobby, yeah. including Bobby Brown. Was very wow. nice, and you always, yeah. was. I, I know I was expecting a nightmare with him. Right, and then I had the pleasure of interviewing for Payne. This was about ten plus years ago, before the miniseries even dropped. And the funny thing that was mentioned was some of the stuff he was talking about actually ended up being in the miniseries. And then when I approached him about how do you feel about when Maurice created New Kids, which was pretty much the pop version of New Edition, he was like. I have no problems with it. And then Danny made it be known when I asked him, like, hey, New Edition was the inspiration for us. We really wanted to pattern ourselves after them. We weren't stealing nothing. We always acknowledged that they paved the way for us and always show love. Did they show love by maybe, like, support, you know, putting them on tour with them? <laughs> Actually, no. Actually, I wish they would have during their prom. Yeah. I'm still holding out hope that we'll get a New Edition New Kids Tour, because for me, it'll be a full circle moment for both groups due to the Maurice Stark connection. And I'm sure yeah, there were a lot like of... 50? Go ahead. Like 50? Right? Like like old. Yeah, I think Jordan just turned 50 a couple of days ago, actually. Oh, my God. I think New Edition is underrated. The reason why New Kids were bigger than New Edition is, you know, duh, uh, they were the white group. They were marketed pop. I mean, that's just flat-out record company racism across the board. But I think that New Edition had the better songs. They had the better producers. They had the better personalities. You could see them actually grow as artists. I, am, I mean, they were both equally important to their respective demographics, but I don't think that New Edition was ever given the respect uh, that they deserved because they were viewed as, like, oh, bubblegum black music, you know? Not that right. New Kids got a tremendous amount of respect either, but I'm saying New Edition is... Seriously underappreciated. Those songs hold up. They hold up. Mm -hmm. That's all you need to know. 
You can listen yeah. to If It Isn't Love. You can, I could listen to If It Isn't Love once a week and be a very happy camper, you know? Yeah, definitely that because listening to the Heartbreak album, you can hear yeah. how Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis was able to take their strengths and heighten it in the way that they introduced Johnny on the back half of that album was perfect. My career was defined in the early 90s by, like, being that girl who was firmly convinced that L.A. and Babyface and Jam and Lewis were as important as Lennon and McCartney in their own way. So you don't have to ever say anything to convince me about Jam and Lewis's importance. Another bunch of guys who are given their respect, obviously, but I think seriously underrated, too, because they worked with black music. I don't think they got people really paying attention to them in the same way until they were, like, with Human League or something. I love them, and I love Babyface. I love LaFace, all the LaFace yeah. stuff. Love it. Yeah, I, I'm a fan of LaFace, Jam and Lewis, and for me, I like Teddy because Teddy, for me, yeah. I was, like, coming into my formative years when Teddy was hitting because Dangerous came out in 91. I was about six. So, Teddy right. had... <laughs> yes. I hate you. <laughs> but Teddy, he had that sound of where it was young, it was hip hop. I mean, for him to take Michael from the sound we knew from his work with Quincy Jones, Rod Temperton, Grandfather Games, and then to make him youthful with Remember the Time, that whole album, to me, it was a masterclass on how you able to adapt and change with the time for me. Michael yeah, was able Teddy to do that way. And also, you don't have the Neptunes or Missy and Timbaland without Teddy. For nothing else, he deserves his place in the pantheon for that. And then, once again, with talent, Andre Harrell, I'm going to bring it back to these four guys that hail from my home state of North Carolina. Joe. Oh, God, Jodeci. Did you ever see him perform? I didn't see Jodeci perform, but um, by them being from North Carolina, I was able to see at a small club Fantasia perform a year after she won Idol. And to just hear her sing, her voice what harkens back to the great soul, female soul singers of the 60s. Oh, that yeah, power, sure. that range. Yeah. But Jodeci... The smart thing that Diddy did was instead of marketing them like Guy, where you're going to have them wear suits and be clean cut, I'm going to have them dress like my dudes around the way. Combat boots, backwards hats, and just be hard, tough guys, but can actually think of Casey's voice. His voice is deep in soul like Bobby Womack. He did if you think you're lonely now. I mean, Womack is his most obvious influence, but it says a lot about Casey as a singer that that's the guy most singers kind of veer towards. Stevie or veered towards Marvin, which is great. But to go for Bobby, Bobby Womack's one of my full-out favorite artists of all time. And to go towards Bobby as your sonic influence says a lot about what you're like as an artist because Bobby had that real push and pull between secular and popular music. And he was a great musician as well. But what I was going to say is, do you remember, you're probably too young, but do you remember, I think it was the Grammys where Casey and JoJo came up on stage with machetes. Do you remember that? Um, so no. accepted an award. They were wearing masks and not coronavirus masks. Vaguely, I do, but they kind of scared the industry where they were rough around the edges, which was why the pop audience took to a liking the voice of men because they were safe. I mean, they were safe. They were being marketed in very, very different ways. I mean, they were just, boys to men were more in the school of the traditional male vocal group, you know, whereas Jodeci was definitely, you know, I would make the argument that there is a subsect of white audiences that could relate more to a Jodeci than a boys to men because there are white people who want to see 
stereotypical bullshit. Not bullshit, but that they would see boys to men as too soft, you know? Right. I boys to men. And I see what you're saying. They were sort of like the yin and yang of black music at that point. I think they had a lot more in common, actually, than different. And who's to say whether, you know, that's who Jodeci was. They were those guys, you know what I mean? I don't think boys to men were those guys. I mean, it would have looked crazy for boys to men to get up there and, you know, with, like, their pants hanging off and stuff like that. Right. I like both groups, and I personally feel that Cooley High Harmony was Boyz II Men's best album. That album was heavily produced by Dallas Austin. Yeah, I always liked Boyz II Men. I used to laugh when I was at VH1. I used to say that my job was to be able to tell people which one was Wanye and which one was Nathan, because nobody knew who, which one was which. No, I always liked Boyz II Men. Like I said, I am a sucker for a hook, and those guys had great hooks, and I saw them perform. A couple times, and they were great, great live yeah. acts, you know? Yeah, my wife and I got a chance to see them at their Vegas residency when oh, it was the three of them, and then Martin Nelson from Ashette came in and did some stuff with them. And to me, they still sounded good as a three-piece to the point where you didn't really miss Mike because Nate was doubling doing his part and Mike's bass. Right. And they still sound great. And speaking of which, Wanye's kids, are seeing they were just on the Nickelodeon talent show, America's Most Talented Families, which was hosted by Nick Lachey for 90 Degrees, and they sound amazing. The apple didn't fall too far from the tree with Wanya. Well, that's good. Well, that's good. Somebody has to make a living for them. And then with Boys to Men, that served as an inspiration for Lou Pearlman in his creation of Bashy Boys. Uh, yeah, and, well, and see, not, I mean... Uh, Lou Pearlman's oh, problematic, no. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it's very, very touchy. He did a good thing with those groups, but when everything else came out, that just kind of tainted that era for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, those are, yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, touchy yeah, is the word. It, yeah, 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 we don't want to touch that with a 10 foot pole. Now over to the UK side of things, there was a yeah. girl group called Eternal, and they were put together to be the UK answer to Invoke. They had a hit single oh, in the UK called Stay, and they got a little bit of traction here in the state. Now, I thought they could have broke over here, but I think with the girl group being crowded here in the states, you had Invoke, SWV, TLC, Escape, Candy just won the new season of Mass Finger. I just felt like it's always harder for groups from other countries to break here because you kind of had to do a lot more to cater to the urban market, whereas like how you would take an international version of the album Take a few songs off, put a few new ones on just to cater to the U.S. I remember Eternal, because I remember going, there was some party, record release party for them. You're going, well, we have groups that are just like this, so why should we go for them? They might not have toured enough. They might have had something, you know. It took a very long time before American audiences would admit that even though we invented hip-hop, there are groups that do hip-hop around the world, you know. So we always would look like, oh, British rap, that's bullshit. You know, now grime is probably better than most American hip-hop in a lot of ways. There's that famous Mark Twain quote about the United States and England are two countries divided by a common language. We're very different places. We have very different sensibilities. And what is going to be popular in the U.K. might not be popular here and vice versa. So with a group like Eternal, I mean, you know, record company politics aside, American audiences might have just looked at and said, Oh, I don't like the way they dress. I could look at SWV. I know girls who look like SWV. I don't know girls who look like Eternal. You know, it could have been something as right. simple as that. So why do you think Top of the Pops didn't explode here in America? They did a short-lived one in 87, 
but it didn't take off. Honestly, we had our own show. You talking about Top of the Pops featuring American acts or, or British acts? Top of the Pops featured American acts because the 87 one they did on CBS over here, it was just U.S. acts, and then they would do a satellite uplink with the U.K. show to show some of the U.K. performance. I mean, I think the name alone, we don't even know what that means, Top of the Pops. It's, it's not an American expression. They would have had to change the name. I mean, what is that? You know what I mean? That doesn't mean anything to an American audience. It's, it's like driving on the wrong side of the road. We're more accepting now. I mean, obviously, X Factor was big here and all those kind of shows. But we're very, we're America, you know, America exceptionalism. We think we invented everything. We had American shows. Why look at them when we have our own shows? I think the title would have thrown an American audience off, you know. Right. And then the thing that I still find baffling about the UK music charts is that for them, having a Christmas number one single is a huge deal. It's like yeah, it's an honor over there. No, I don't get that at all. That's Love Actually. That's the whole plot of Love Actually, isn't it? <laughs> right. And from the UK, we have the late, great George Michael, whose faith album was the first number one album by a white artist to go number one on the R&B charts. He got airplay on Urban Radio and okay. ran as well. But the big backlash came when he won two AMA awards for Best R&B Album and Best R&B Performance. And some urban artists at the time felt like, how come he's getting these urban honors when you had other acts like Bobby Brown, Keith Sweat nominated? And that's what led him to name his next album, Listen Without Prejudice. And I thought that was so unfair that George didn't deserve that, I personally feel. He didn't deserve the award or he didn't deserve the backlash? He didn't deserve the backlash that came with it. Well, you know, this debate will go on forever. You know, do people have who owns what? Why does Adele win the album of the year over Beyonce? You know, is Beyonce an R&B an artist at this point? Is Tyler the Creator a rap artist? If he were white, would he have won Best Rap or would he have won Best Alternative? I mean, you know, that album isn't particularly a rap record, but, you know, if you're black, you get pitched holds into certain things. So George Michael, to me, had as much impact to black music fans as a white person looking at my black friends, what they were digging. George Michael had as much impact as Keith Sweat and Bobby Brown in his own way. And because he was white, he had the freedom to dip in and out of genres. You know, nobody was going to give Bobby Brown the freedom to make a Brazilian record or to make a record with models, you know? Right. And now I'd be remiss if we didn't mention also around the same time when Andre Hurrell passed, the passing of the originator of rock and roll, Little Richard. Yes. No, come on. Well, there you go. There's your example of people not doing their cultural homework, you know, and knowing where the stuff came from. And Little Richard, who is massive in the U.K. Paul McCartney credits Little Richard with his vocal style. Every time the Beatles went, that's Little Richard, you know. I do think we're more accepting now that the fact that we put U.K. in front of it shows that there's still, we perceive things in different ways. We hear things in different ways. I mean, do you listen to Grime at all? I'm from familiar with it a bit. Don't really listen to it a lot, but the one album that really got me exposed to it was Dizzy Rascal's boy in the corner. Okay, so the problem with grind for an American fan, it's all slang. It's like that show Top Boy. It's like for a British person to watch The Wire. They don't know what you're talking about.
talking about. The difference is, is that for people around the world know the American experience because we're the biggest country in the world and we export pop culture. Most Americans don't know other people's experiences, right? Now, I would recommend you listen to it. It's difficult to understand what they're talking about, but it's very political. And it's like, if you want to know what it's like to be a young black person in the UK right now, that is exactly it. And the beats are really interesting. It's interesting stuff, but it is hard for us as Americans to go, like, what are you talking about, you know? Right, and then I would also be remiss if we didn't mention that also we had lost an icon, Miss Betty Wright. This one particularly hurt for me because me growing up in the South, her music was played a lot at fish fries, cookout, any gatherings, and she pretty much was her own boss at a time where the music industry was and still is unfair for women. Oh, yeah, no, of course. No, she was great. I had a chance to see her perform once, and she was fantastic. She was absolutely fantastic. That's my childhood as well because I remember Clean Up Woman when it came out, you know, when I was, when I was a kid. Then that goes back to the days of when you had regional record labels because down in Florida you had Deep City out of Miami. You had TK Records, Stacks out of Memphis and go anywhere USA and they probably had a regional record label and it was just a different era then so it was amazing how she was able to have such a huge impact with maybe not a lot of mainstream people knew who Betty White was her music they knew it through the samples of artists that sample her music but to go deep in her catalog it was pretty much be only those who knew about deep cut R&B records and stuff and soul yeah but I would argue that Clean Up Woman was a top 10 hit her other stuff mm-hmm. not as much you're absolutely right but clean up woman was a huge hit you know so in your opinion who do you think were some uk acts that you felt could have broken through in the u.s but didn't well had he not died very tragically i think Ephraim lewis could have been really big here i think he was one of the better albums of the 90s Again, he was being positioned very well, not to use an industry term, and then he committed suicide, I believe, or fell. It's unclear how he died, but he passed away. I always loved this guy, Jeffrey Williams. I don't know if you ever heard of him. He was kind of a rock R&B guy in the 90s who was on an American label. I thought Beverly Knight. I think Beverly Knight is great, and she's never gotten a lot of play in this country. To go for Courtney's favorite group, Sugar Babes, I've never understood why they were bigger here. Take that, certainly. I don't know why yeah. Robbie Williams, I mean, he's not R&B, but for God's sake, why wasn't Robbie Williams bigger here? I know why he wasn't bigger here, but hypothetically, why wasn't he bigger here? Interesting is that Harry Styles sells more records in this country than he does in the UK. That's really which, Which is weird, because I remember Robbie Williams getting moderate airplay over here with Angels, Millennium, and Rock DJ, because I first heard of him when Back for Good exploded here in the U.S. It was right. a top 10 AC hit, Boys to Men recently covered it, and I was like, Gary Barlow, great songwriter, could have possibly had a career as an AC artist here, and I thought, right. sure, off the Nobody Else album, was that right mix of where it was pop, had a hit of R&B, kind of like the direction that Madonna was going into with the Bedtime Stories album. I mean, one thing that I will say, especially in terms of Robbie Williams and in terms of British artists, there is a British sense of humor that Americans don't get. Americans are not really big on irony. Our humor is not 
across the board, but it tends to be more overt. There's not a lot of, like, subtlety to a lot of American stuff. And so someone like Robbie Williams was, as they say in England, taking the piss out of himself. We don't understand that, really, in this country. We're a more self-aggrandizing culture, so we don't understand people who are kind of being nod, nod, wink, wink about stuff. So I think that's one of the problems why he didn't break. Also, that video for Rock DJ where he's ripping his skin off. I mean, come on, you're trying to sell the guy as a sex symbol? (laughs) You have a video where he's, like, literally ripping the flesh off his bones. But you should listen to, like, Beverly Knight. You should listen to Lyndon David Hall. He was also great. Young Disciples. I mean, oh, my God. They were fantastic. But those groups had, you know, enough pockets of support in this country that they may not have sold a lot of records, but people certainly knew them and respected them. And Craig David. Why wasn't Craig David huge in this country? Yeah, I was happy once Born to Do It exploded over here because I brought the CD because MTV did a profile on them on You Hear It First and I got it solely off of that alone. My favorite, two cuts, Seven Days and then Rewind, which was done by Off the Dust. Well, I'll tell you a story about Craig David actually. It's kind of interesting. Massive, massive in England. I mean, everywhere you would go, his pictures of him everywhere. So when they decided to bring him over to the United States and work him domestically, I was actually, the label called me up and they said, you know, we'd love to pick your brain about him and have you talk to him. This is really interesting. This just talks about how fucked up this country is. He's biracial, Craig David, but he would talk about his mother all the time in the interviews and his mother is white and he would have very light-skinned or white models in his video and the label was trying to impress upon him that if he wanted to appeal to a black American audience, he had to stop talking about the mother all the time and stop having white girls in his video all the time and start having videos that reflected the audience that he wanted to reach and he didn't understand that, not because he's a dumb guy, but because he didn't get the racial dynamics of the United States, which is not to say England isn't horribly racist too. But that's just really interesting to me that they had to sort of map that out for him, you know? I don't think that's the reason he didn't make it. It's a weird thing when you think about it. Yeah, have you seen this movie called Babylon? Yes, the reggae movie? Yeah, I just saw that for the first time a couple of months ago. It wasn't released here in America until last no, year. No, great movie. They feared that it would cause race riots, but it was kind of like you get to see the UK black experience and you're like, hmm, there's some striking similarities between the black experience in the US and for black experience oh, yeah. for UK youth. Oh, yeah. We don't have the patent on racism in this country. So when you read up on the Windrush generation, which I had never heard of before and then I read about it, well, that's that show Top Boy, which you need to watch your subtitles because it's completely incomprehensible slang. It's a different sort of racism over there. There's racism nonetheless, and it's going to present itself across the board. I was going to say real fast that the first person I can think of a black British artist that really adopted an American sensibility and tried to sell it back was Mark Morrison. The Return of the Mac. That was somebody not trying to be British. That was somebody really trying to sound American. You know, that record sold over here, didn't it? It did okay. Yeah, and it's still getting played. Now, my UK act, I felt, should have broken through here. I felt Eternal should have broken through here. E17 should have broken through here. I felt Five should have had more success here in the States. And the one act that I've been championing since I saw clips of them on the big reunion and videos was Damage. 
Who are they? I have to check them out. Damage. They were a four-man R&B group. They had a record called Forever. It was written by Wayne Hector, who would later go on to write songs for like Westlife, Boyzone, a lot of those groups over there. It was big in the okay. UK. And then they had a song called Love to Love. In the video for it, they're all like on strings, kind of like Instinct and Bye Bye Bye. But I felt okay. had their look and sound would have been a little bit more urban, they would have broke. And actually, one of the members of the group is currently married to Baby Spice from the Spice Girls. Well, there you go. Well, like I said, it's just an interesting thing because it's everybody brings their own kind of sense. Like, who would have ever thought in the United States that back in the day, reggae was something that American black audiences, that reggae was first embraced in the United States by white hippie kids, right? And now it's just part and parcel of our culture. The same thing with, like, Latin trap or reggaeton and stuff like that. It's changing a lot, but there is a British sort of sensibility. Look, Seal was bigger in the United States than he was overseas. I mean, he was big that first record, and then he was much bigger here. So I think it's an interesting thing, and especially with black music, I think that they have to... I don't know if it's the same case now. I wonder if those groups would do better now, you know? Yeah, because I um, messaged one of the members from Damage on social media, and he was telling me that um, the record label they were signed didn't know how to market them to a U.S. urban audience. They did a couple of test tour dates over here, and it just didn't pan out. I just think it just requires, like you said about Craig David, to switch everything up in order to cater to the U.S. market because of the racial dynamics here. Yeah, I mean, it's just such a weird, and also, you know, in defense of the United States, England is the size of, like, New Jersey. I mean, we're a massively huge country. So you grew up in North Carolina. I grew up in New York. We grew up in totally different worlds, and yet we're both Americans. If you grew up in England, you know, it, it, there's much more of a homogeneous, not homogeneous, but it's just a smaller country. You know, it's easier to market somebody over there. Mm, and your thoughts on when Dr. Dre's The Chronic came out, because when I listened to Questlove do his live set a couple of days ago, he was saying how once that came out, it shifted everything for hip-hop, because you got to think about at that time, a lot of the beats that were in rap records were primarily fast, up-tempo, because everything was coming out of New York. But what Dr. Dre did with The Chronic, everything was slow because it fit the California lifestyle where it was very laid back and very chill. I was one of those people who was an East Coast girl, and I heard all those records. And I thought they were great, but I also, to be honest with you, I was just so, I found Dre to be such a repulsive human being. (laughs) I couldn't, I just was looking at him like, He's a pig. Sorry. I mean, um, I've never been a fan of him as a human being, never been an NWA fan. I'm the girl that vote, that fought to keep NWA out of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I obviously was wildly unsuccessful. But The Chronic is a great, I mean, it's a great record. It holds up. But yeah. And it's funny great because I love all those samples. But I, yeah, I mean, I was used to East Coast hip hop. I was used to Gangstar and, and Tribe and stuff that was a little, not esoteric, but, a, you know, different. Not, not conscious. Well, no, 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 not conscious. Not conscious at all, no. Uh, not that. Just, we don't drive in New York, so I don't need music that sounds good in my car. 
You know what I mean? That sounds crazy, but I don't drive. So I need music that sounds good when I'm walking down the street. No, and I love all those beats because I was raised with P-Funk and stuff. It just initially, I was like, uh, hip-hop is a New York thing. You're stealing our music. And, of course, I turned out to be an idiot because they brought great stuff to it. But I just had a very visceral dislike of Dre as a human being. Right. And what was your take on the explosion of Southern hip-hop? Because around that same time frame, when Outkast came out with Southern Player Lipstick and they accepted their Source Award nomination, Andre 2000 stood up on stage and said, the South got something to say, because at the time, the South was looked at as, you're not lyrical as New York, you're not like the West Coast, and I think it was probably a tough sale for regions outside of the South to play Southern hip-hop until we had to beat the door down and say, you're going to notice us. I have to be very honest with you. I was not paying attention to a lot of that stuff back then. I heard Outkast, but I really, I'll be very honest with you, I was not really paying attention as much to the Southern stuff at that point. My focus in terms of Southern music, and it's not Southern, was Atlanta stuff with LaFace and the R&B stuff more. I certainly heard the first Outkast record and some of that early stuff, but I wasn't really, I'd be lying to you if I told you I was paying much attention to it. Right, and then with hip-hop being the most listened to genre, we've kind of lost that sense of regionality where on the West Coast you would hear a record that would sound, hmm, this is the West Coast record, or you go to Houston, they chop and screw. Miami, Miami Bay, D.C., Go-Go, and I think because of the world being so small because of the internet and social media, we've kind of lost that distinctive flavor with where you go to different locales and you have to know as a DJ, you better play these records because these are what the locals are listening to. And I think we've lost well, that. You, yeah, well, you can thank Clear Channel and iHeartRadio for that, you know. You have corporate playlists now. I mean, that's basically what if you want to listen to individual sort of stuff, I imagine you'd have to listen to college radio. But also, you don't have to listen to albums anymore. I mean, I'm sitting here during this COVID shelter in place, like cleaning like a crazy person and throwing out CDs right and left because I'm like, I can just listen to it online now, uh, you know. So the whole concept, you can just pick and choose what you want to listen to, which is good in a way. But there is no, there's still regional things with some things in a way, um, obviously. But I would say musically, it's, it's hard pressed to do it because, yeah, because of social media, but also because of corporate radio. Right, which is why I got out of it because I just didn't like how everything was the same and you got pretty much one person at corporate headquarters programming all of these different stations to play this, 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 this because algorithms say this where we look at now pretty much all the streaming platforms are customizing playlists based on music that you're playing and saying here we're going to think that you're going to like this because we've heard that you play this on your algorithm. That's that's sort of creepy in in a way. Yeah, kind of stalkerish which leads yeah. to my next thing about um I have been getting through quarantine through Questlove's set and oh. how Instagram is now policing the live set. So they have a time limit on how long you can play a song before they'll mute you off your feed. So DJs have to come up now with creative ways to mask records that they play on Instagram so that the algorithm won't catch it. Oh, is that why it is? I thought it was because publishing. I thought that the publishers were stepping in now and wanting money. Yeah, that too, because the labels are trying to figure out how we're going to monetize these live stream performances so that we can make money. And I feel like it's going to have the same impact like what happened when Napster came out and the industry was shaking in their boots because all of a sudden you're not going to go to Power, Camelot, or Sam Goody to pay $18.99 for a CD 
where I could just hook up my 56K dial-up and download a song for free. Yeah, you know what? I have listened to maybe two or three of those DJ sets. I just find all the celebrities jumping in to be annoying. But I will say this. Big shock that people are trying to monetize something. I mean, you know, it's really sad, but that's the American way. This is the way the culture is going to be. Look, clubs are done. Clubs are done for the next, at least the next six months, at least in big cities, you know. Touring is done. There are not going to be any major tours or tours of any kind of significance till 2021, they're saying, in the major markets, right? So they have to figure out musicians, DJs, and the labels, and everybody else has to figure out a way to switch their game plan creatively and artistically and monetarily to this new reality we're in. So it doesn't surprise me that something that began organically is now somebody's going to try to figure out a way how they can make as much money as possible. I would assume not the DJs, but Instagram itself. Because who's Instagram? That's Mark Zuckerberg, right? Mark Zuckerberg is Facebook, I believe. Don't they own Instagram, too? They own Instagram? Yeah, I'm not sure. It won't surprise me if he owns Instagram as well. Who knows? Well, I mean, when you post something on Facebook, it gives you the option of posting on Instagram. So I'm assuming, I think Instagram is Facebook. I think they have the same. The point being is that this is an opportunity for people to start making money on things and so I thought they were trying to shut it down for publishing but it wouldn't surprise me it wouldn't surprise me that they're trying to rein it in in some way you know yeah because I was talking to a lot of my friends who I know that are DJs and they were saying because of COVID half their gigs been wiped out so they're trying to figure out how I'm going to get money oh yeah no we're all screwed <laughs> I mean that's it we're all I mean, it's the economic fallout of this is going to be worse. I mean, not to get depressed, but the economic fallout, we're going to be paying for this forever, forever, ever, ever. It's bad. But, yeah, no, of course. I mean, it's not just touring in terms of the famous people. It's the people who work at the stadium. Who's going to sell the merch? Who's going to sell the popcorn? It's all the little people, the dancers, the choreographers, the costume designers, the sex designers, the white men. The big-name bands will survive. You know, they will survive, but it's everybody else. It's going to be very different. A different world. So um, what are your thoughts on the show Songland and how they're able to kind of peel back the curtain a little bit at the songwriting process? Never seen it. Sorry. Great show. Great show you have. Uh, where Shane is Manon. it? Tell me where it is. I'll check it. It's on NBC. It's season two. You have Ryan Tedder, Esther Dean, and Shane McNally, who's a well-known writer for a country artist. And what they do is they have... Esther Dean's, Esther Dean's us. Is she a songwriter, really? Seriously? Yeah. Yeah, writer, she, right? yeah. She wrote What's My Name for Rihanna. She wrote Rude Boy for Rihanna, along with Teenage Dream for Katy Perry. No, I know who she is. I know who she is. But um, mm. I read a profile of her. Like it's like a reality show for songs. It's pretty much kind of like a songwriter showcase where you have four contestants. They showcase their original song. They pick their top three songs where the songwriter goes into the studio with either Ryan, Esther, or Shane to rework their song. And then they perform it for the artist that's there to have a song get picked for the week. And then at the end of the show, they pick one song for that artist to record after they're hearing the rewatch oh. song. So you had artists such as Martina McBride, Her, Old Dominion, One Republic, and last week it was Florida Georgia Line. So it's kind of like serving as a showcase for up-and-coming songwriters to showcase their stuff. I have to be really honest with you. It sounds like something I would not like. It's not everybody's cup of tea. I'm not trying to be mean. It just doesn't oh, no. sound like my thing. Um, and yeah. I actually interviewed Ryan Tedder many years ago, and I, he's 
yeah, I wasn't, he's very talented, but I wasn't very impressed with him as a human being. So it just right. doesn't sound like my kind of thing. I'm sorry. I, right. I watched, right. I watched 90 Day Fiance. I love 90 Day Fiance. That's my wife and I's guilty pleasure. Take that word out of your vocabulary. It's not a guilty pleasure. It's a pleasure. There's nothing you need to feel guilty about. Mm-hmm. Nothing. It's an educational show. It's on the learning channel. It's the best. Yeah. It's the only, can I tell you something? It's the only way I know what day of the week it is now because <laughs> I'm sitting here going, what day is it? And then my best friend calls me up. She goes, we have to watch, we watch together on the phone. So that's the only way I know it's Sunday. Yeah, Meredith First Sight is another show that I like. And then no, I also no love. No, pleasure. We'll, we'll have our 90 Day Fiance conversation once. I'm very late to the show. I've only been watching it for two years, but I love it. And I'm very concerned and you need to discuss this with your wife. I'd love to hear her opinion. I'm very concerned. How are they going to continue the show when people can't travel anywhere? That I don't know. And that's another thing that TV and film has been halted because of COVID. Because I brought up to her. I was like, we probably may not have a 2020, 2021 season because of COVID. Yeah, there's no country that they film in where there aren't people sick. Even Angela will not get on a plane to go to Nigeria in the middle of the so for Michael. She's for Michael. Oh, we need Yeah. That. Oh. We should go ahead and do that, man. I thought, you know, her going over for Michael. I'm like, hey. I'm like, hey, you know, that's love. I wouldn't do it. But let's talk about, um, did you see the one with Aston and I forgot the girl's oh, name. Oh, shit. Oh, Ashley, she's the best. Ash is an asshole. Oh, we hate him. We hate him. He's a white hotep. Oh, he's not white, but he's a hotep. I can't mm. stand him. Aren't you impressed that I can work the word hotep into a conversation? Oh yeah, oh yeah. It's definitely that another another show you would you would need to be up on if you haven't done so already is Love After Lockup. I watched that too. Oh, oh, what, what do you think about Michael, the dude from Flint, Michigan, how he was playing Megan and Sarah, and then he had his, had his new boo? That was almost too white trashy for me, I have to say. It kind of hit her. The problem with that one, though, is it feels much faker than 90. 90 Day feels real. Love as a locker feels a little fake, because you can see him smiling sometimes right. when they're going to hit somebody in the camera. Um, mm. But I really honestly have been, Courtney laughs when I tell him this, I have literally spent how many months have we been on lockdown? What has it been since March? Our right, New York mm-hmm. City went to shelter in place in March. So it's been March, April, May. Okay. Three months, two and a half months watching nothing but Israeli television on Netflix and Amazon. Don't ask me why. I started watching all these shows and 90 Day Fiance. But Love After Lockup is another one. It's yeah. like mind-boggling. Married at First Sight is another good one. All right. I've heard about that one, too. Yeah, I think yeah, the frame th- watches that. That's a good one. Right now, they're going to do the Australian import of the show over here. But pretty much, I'm like... You're getting married blindly at the altar, and you have eight weeks to decide whether you're going to stay married or get divorced. And I felt that's where Netflix ripped off their show Love is Blind from, because it's kind of like Married at First Sight, but it's kind of set up like a dating game where you're behind a wall, oh, okay. only, yeah, you're only here. I, I didn't see that either, because yeah. I, I was like, man, that's a Married at First Sight ripoff. But 90 Day Fiance, I'm like, I'm not flying halfway across the world, draining my savings just so that there's possibility that it may not work they're out. Not they're not draining their savings. They're getting paid. True. I know you get some money going through, but I think about how expensive it is you're flying back and forth halfway across the world paying for all these fees and then the thing is when they come over and you get married you're still on the hook for them if they happen to go back to their home country. So it seems like it's a big risk. 
when you're well, it marrying. Is. But think how much joy it's giving us, and that's the important thing, right? That gives us a lot of joy and a lot of smiles, just like The Mad Singer. Well, it's another show that I love watching. As I stated earlier, Candy won this past season of the show. And it seems like now it's becoming a great promotional tool for some artists. Chris Daltrey was on there uh, season two. Once again, don't think badly of me. I've never seen it. I'm not of a reality show. I don't like those kind right. of shows. It's a good, clean, family-friendly show, you know, uh, South Korea import. And Nick yeah. Cannon is making uku bugs off of this show. Now, tell me about I'm Gonna Let You Finish and how you came about that show along with your co-host, Courtney Anderson. Oh, okay. Courtney and I have known each other for many years. Courtney has done many things in the music industry. He's a dance remixer. He's done video promotion. And we knew each other through the industry world. And I always found him to be hilarious. And he always found me to be hilarious. And someone had said to him, you should do a podcast. People have always been on me to do a podcast. I did one years ago and I stopped doing it. And then we decided to do one together. We have very similar tastes in music, but we also have dissimilar. It's not similar enough that we're repeating each other's words and we have very similar political and social take but we're very different people from different backgrounds which complements each other but we're both essentially music lovers and we're New Yorkers which is a very particular breed and we started doing it in each other's homes and then we found a studio space in Chinatown which unfortunately has been closed down because of COVID. We're now doing it on the phone. We're hoping to pick up again and and the title simply came for we were like throwing out titles and I was like how about I'm gonna let you finish and what's so funny is that Courtney didn't even realize or had forgotten that that was a reference to Kanye that's where I got the title from but we're on Instagram at it's I'ma I-M-M-A-L-E-T-F-I-N-I-S-H Instagram Spotify Stitcher you can follow us on Twitter it's Finish I'ma uh, Facebook so we're having a blast with it we're having an absolute blast with it the feedback has been really great I I mean, you know, I love music. I love talking about music. I love talking politics. I love talking culture like you do. So it's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun. Right. I definitely enjoyed the show. And I got to mention, since you are a native New Yorker, I had the pleasure of visiting the Big Apple twice. I loved oh. it. I had a chance to go to the Apollo Theater to oh, yeah, audition great. for Amateur Night. Not the TV show, but the regular Wednesday night Amateur Are Night. Are you a singer? Are you a singer? Used to be. So it was a cattle call, so I took a bus oh, ride from so North cool. Carolina. North Carolina. The first time I went to the Apollo, I was shocked at how small it is. Didn't you always think it was going to be huge? I thought it was going to be huge. And that's why I told my wife, I'm like, that's where TV camera angles come in to make the venue appear a lot bigger than it is. I know. The first time I went there, I was like, wow, this place is... I thought it was going to be the size of Radio City Musical. And it's not. It's not that big at all. Well, City, we're very glad that you were here. Yeah, but for me to stand on that stage and just to think about, wow, this is where Ray Charles stood. This is where Michael Jackson stood, James Brown stood, I got a chance to rub the log and just... I was going to say, did you do that? Yeah. I had to rub the log. At least I made it to the second verse before the sign kicked in. I made it to the second verse, but just the fact that just being at a historic venue like that and just to think about the legacy of the Apollo and just New York in general, how they say, if you make it here, you can make it anywhere. I mean, 
just the size of it. That's quite a coup. Good for you. I have a New York accent. We don't speak English correctly here. You know that. Mm-hmm. We don't know how to talk. So one more thing I want to ask you then, then I'm going to get you on out of here. So what are your thoughts about the current K-pop phenomenon with what BTS is doing over here in the States? I don't understand it. They're all, look, I mean, there's like a hundred guys in that group, right? Well, okay, here. It's not music for me. I know they're fans of bananas. I will say it's going to be the new kids on the block all over again in the sense that you have a group that's like whipping off black music and putting their own little spin on it. I find them visually to be a little creepy. There's too many of them and and the look is a little kind of weird to me, but the kids love them. I have never seen fans. At the studio we used to tape at, it was in Chinatown, and they would have these K-pop, like, fan gatherings there. And it was insanity, absolute insanity. K-pop's been bubbling under for a while now, and it seems to have really had its moment, you know? Right, and I think with the explosion of, you know, the success of Crazy Rich Asians, Fresh Off the Boat, North or Queens, that that segment, the Asian demographic is finally getting looked at and say, hey, we need to be taken seriously. Well, yes, and then at the same time, though, the incidence of violence against Asian people is rising in this country, so that's really tragic, too. But, yeah. no, Asians are a huge demographic in this country, and at the end of the day, look, it's pop music, it's R&B. I mean, we like it in any form. The Asian market is massive. It's always interesting to see the next wave of what comes up and what sticks, you know? Yeah, because it reminds me of, like, New Edition, New Kids, Backstreet, and that whole phenomenon but it's just on steroids because I think over there with K-pop they're very big on having five plus members and some of the groups are co-ed yeah I don't understand why there's so many people in the group I really don't I mean it's like how you supposed to latch on to who you like you know right I know and then this brings me back to my last point about UKX Looking at some of those boy bands dance, their choreography is a little stiff. Well, yeah, the Brits aren't known for their dancing. No, there's not that many Justin Timberlake over on that side of the pond. You take what you can get. Tell the people how they can get a hold of you on social media for I'm going to let you finish and if they want to leave comments or anything. Yeah, I'm going to let you finish. So if you follow us on Twitter, it's finish. I'm on Instagram, it's I'm going to let you finish. On Facebook, we have a Facebook page so you can join our Facebook page. Courtney and I post all sorts of interesting things on there. If you go to Spotify, we are there on Spotify and SoundCloud, and we also post a playlist for every show. So our next show is going to be dedicated to cover versions of songs because we're sick of talking about Donald Trump. So, yeah, it's a great show if you love music and culture and arts and Sports. We're also big sports fans, so you can find us on Google Play, Apple Music. We're basically everywhere. Fisher. Right. So it's I'm a, I-M-M-A-L-E-T-F-I-N-I-S-H. I'm going to let you finish. All right. And thoughts on the musical selection of The Last Dance? I read something that actually, that it was funny that they had that much hip-hop in it because at the time the NBA was not very pro-rap. So they threw the hip-hop in to appeal to a contemporary audience because at the time, the NBA's imaging was not that, they were not going for that sort of thing. I thought the music was great. I thought it was on point, and I thought it was interesting how Jordan's look and the shoes were embraced by the hip-hop community, although he was not of that generation of hip-hop, so I found that 
very interesting musical selection was on point and it just shows how hip-hop transcends culture and it's everywhere well yeah as i was watching i mean we're going to get into a fight on this and i don't want to end on a fight because you're a north carolina guy but i never liked michael jordan never will like michael jordan part of it is because i'm a knicks fan but also just i just don't like him but looking at Rodman now, in hindsight, I'm like, every SoundCloud rapper should be writing that guy a check because for a look that was considered so outrageous then is now like everybody looks like that now. So he was way ahead of the curve in that thing. I mean, it was a great special to watch that old footage, but I did read that the music, they picked music that the NBA would not have embraced. Because remember, that's back in the day when the NBA, when Allen Iverson got into trouble for having cornrows. Remember then? You know, you had to be in a suit all the time when you were off the court. So it was a very different NBA than it is now. So music function I thought was very good. Yeah, I definitely agree. Any shout-outs you want to give before we conclude? Just shout-out to anybody who is holding it down right now during the thing. Register to vote, please. Shout-out to Courtney for this. I mean, no, just uh, hi, everybody. You know, please follow us, though. We'd love to have you join the I'm going to let you finish massive. Thank you, Jarrell, for inviting me. This is really sweet of you to do this. I appreciate it. I love reading your stuff online. It's always fun to converse with people who are knowledgeable and smart about music and love music. So I hope everybody's safe and taking care of themselves. And we're six feet away from each other, so this is a safe interview to do. So be healthy and happy, everybody, as best you can, you know. All right. Right, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it, Miss Amy Linden, music cultural creator and co-host of the podcast. I'm going to let you finish. Amy, thank you for doing this interview. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye.